Sir Bell from the team of Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. His weekly Monday appearance. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program, as he does every week. Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. We begin our look towards the 2017 season by looking back at the two clubs remaining at the end of the 2016 campaign, Cleveland Indians and the Chicago Cubs. What holes did those clubs have to address in order to return to the World Series? Dave Cameron answers that question, but only after reminding me that even the best club's odds of making the World Series are minuscule, or at least low, if not minuscule. Writing for Fangraphs earlier this week, Neil Weinberg examined a class of player, 13 players in fact, who would have been free agents this year if they had not signed extensions. And in most cases, it appears as though they are making significantly less money than they otherwise would have if they had gone to free agency. I asked Dave Cameron if it might make sense to expect young players this offseason and in the near future to test their value on the open market more frequently. Finally, while this year's free agent market is not particularly robust, there is one means by which any number of clubs could upgrade, and that's by way of trade. The Chicago White Sox would appear to be the team with whom they should trade. As Dave Cameron explains, the White Sox have a Stars and Scrubs roster with too few stars. The White Sox have a championship nucleus. That it just The drop-off is so dramatic from there to the rest of their roster that this is just not a team that's good enough to win. More white-hot commentary just like that in What Follows. What's following most immediately, however, is a message from the sponsor. It is SeatGeek and SeatGeek.com. SeatGeek is the sponsor. While life itself is pretty clearly a carnival of horrors, shopping for tickets needn't be that way as well. What SeatGeek does is to aggregate tickets available at all other sites, presumably at all other sites on the entire Internet, into one place so that it is easier to find value. And in fact, they assign a grade based on value to every ticket that's available so that like an early 21st century general manager, someone who's interested in buying a ticket can exploit inefficiencies in that particular market. Now, you don't need me to remind you that SeatGeek itself is a byword for honesty. Unlike StubHub, SeatGeek never assesses customers any fees or mysterious fees at any point during the transaction from the beginning to the end of the deal. For enduring this message, listeners are entitled to a $20 rebate. Here's how to claim it. What you do is you download the free SeatGeek app. You go to the settings tab and click add a promo code. You enter the promo code Fangraphs. That's F-A-N-G-R-A-P-H-S. Fangraphs. SeatGeek will send you $20 after you've made your first ticket purchase. Download the free SeatGeek app and enter the promo code Fangraphs today for your nearest possible convenience. With which we have reached the end of the introduction. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. we now where are, what's going on hey listen yeah uh let me ask you this okay the world series is over it is it's complete we have a winner the cubs won yeah not first, the most first time in 108 years you might have heard right yeah so i mean i guess it's decisive in in the sense that uh they were they won more games but it wasn't it was a well uh it was a well contested series you, and you, i actually kind of can't come any closer to a tie than game seven going into extra things 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. So well played. Now, and these are obviously uh, two very different teams uh, in terms of resources. Um, and but but uh, they had they had uh, I guess a similar amount of success. Very as you, as you say, very similar amount tied in the tenth inning amount of success overall in the season. I guess I want to start with with the, just the odds of either of these teams returning to the World Series uh, next year. Now, obviously, once a team hits the playoffs, uh, there's a fair amount of randomness. Um, but uh, what what how well equipped are these teams to return to a similar place next year? Let's start uh, with the Cubs. Let's start with the Cubs. Okay, so the Cubs are better equipped than any other team in baseball to be in the World Series next year. I mean, I don't think there's any question. Everyone can look at this team and be like, Chris Bryant, really good, really young. Edison Russell, really good, really young. Anthony Rizzo, really good, really young. You just go up and down the roster. This is the best young team in baseball and the best team in baseball, period. So no, that was the, that's the lineup you're discussing. It is the lineup I'm discussing. Yeah. But, you know, the only pitcher they're losing from their rotation is Jason Hamill, who they um, got rid of intentionally by declining his option. They could have brought him back, and they decided not to. So um, they don't think that's a huge loss, obviously. Uh, so they get back Jake Arrieta, John Lester, Kyle Hendricks, um, you know, and John Mackey. That's, you know, 80% of their innings, 70% of their innings, something like that. Rotation depth is a question mark, but the pitching is still good. They need some better relievers or Hector Rondon and Pedro Stroke to be healthy next year. But, you know, this is like every team is not perfect. This is the Cubs' imperfectness. But but no team in baseball is better positioned for 2017 than the Cubs. But that said, um, you know, going into any given season, probably the best odds you could give any team of reaching the postseason are like something like 70 or 80%, right? Maybe 90 if they like play in a really terrible division. But, I mean, you're you're not guaranteed to make the playoffs, even if you enter as the best team in baseball. And then if you get to the playoffs, the best team has a 20 to 25% chance of winning the World Series. So, realistically, you're looking at, like, peak World Series odds for any team at somewhere in the range of 20% before the season. So, most likely, four out of five times, the Cubs will not make the World Series next year, even though they're clearly the best team in baseball. Right. The... Uh... <clears throat> In terms of so I so you mentioned that the 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 the, the hitting side of things the field players uh, there's not only there's not only considerable depth but a lot of that depth is quite young um, I, I don't think that there are I mean there are no notable free agents from that team I guess this year besides Dexter, Dexter Fowler. Fowler yeah right who 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 uh, should be said was was resigned by the Cubs this year after failing to secure well I guess he had a deal in place with Baltimore that was. Um, as it is frequently when a free agent signs with the Baltimore, it was eventually canceled. Yeah. Uh, he's going, I assume that he's going to have a, a bigger payday this offseason than he did last year. For sure. So the, the Cubs made him a qualifying offer again. Uh, he's going to turn that down again. So he thinks he's going to do better than $17 million for next year. But that's what the qualifying offer is. I think coming off this season, and specifically probably the change in positioning. So, like, one of the interesting questions around Dexter Fowler has always been his defense. Scouts liked it. Stats hated it. Uh, there was questions about, you know, whether Fowler represents an issue for defensive metrics and if this was evidence of, you know, kind of a flaw in, like, UZR or DRS. Uh, but the Cubs basically told Dexter Fowler, hey, you play too shallow, move back. And his defensive numbers got a lot better. I would assume that any team who signs him is going to be like, yep, they were right, you were playing too shallow. Uh, move, move back, please, or stay moved back. And then the questions surrounding Dexter Fowler's defensive value will not be as large as they probably were last winter now that it's shown to be a correctable error, or at least potentially a correctable error. Um, so I think you're looking at Fowler coming off a very good offensive season. 
Um, now probably seen as a better defender than he was a year ago. I don't think, and you know, in a terrible free agent class, I don't think there's any problems with Dexter Fowler getting a three or four year deal this winter. I'm curious with regard to the Cubs. We mentioned the rotation, right? Now, obviously, they don't have Jason Hamill anymore. Um, they let him go. They could have retained him for what one year, essentially one year and ten million more dollars. Is that right? Correct. They had to pay him a two million dollar buyout instead of paying him a twelve million dollar salary. So yeah, they had a ten million dollar marginal decision. For a player who has produced along the lines of Jason Hamill over the f- past few years, one year and $10 million does not seem like a lot. What was it that made it possible for the Cubs uh, to get rid of Jason Hamill? So I think if you, so the public comment that the Cubs put out yesterday, because I agree, I was surprised when I saw they turned down his option. Um, I'm assuming he's going to sign a deal for significantly more than $10 million. Um, so the, the, Statement that Theo Epstein and the Cubs put out when they announced that they turned down the option was that when they signed him to the deal two years ago, the intention was to have the club option only be exercised if they wanted to continue having him pitch for the Cubs. They said they did not consider picking up the option and then trading him, which contractually they might have had the right to do. Um, that could be just the, you know, we just won a championship. We want to do a favor to a guy who served us well the last couple of years and give him the chance to go out in a free agency and pick what other team he wants to play for. And we don't think that we're going to get, you know, a great return for Jason Hamill at $10 million coming off an elbow problem where he didn't pitch the rest of the year. So to us, it's more valuable to do him a favor than it is to get some C minus prospect that we stick in, you know, low A ball next year. It's also possible that there's just an unannounced, um, clause in the contract that says if Jason Hamill is traded after his option is triggered, then he has the right to opt out. Like that, that this actually used to be in the CBA where if a player was traded in the midst of a multi-year contract, he could opt out of the contract after the next season. Um, it's possible Hamill's agent and, and the Cubs agreed and said, Hey, look, we'll give you this team option, but only if you're going to keep him with the Cubs, if you pick up the option and then trade him, then the option is voided and he becomes a free agent. So we don't actually know what the contract says. It could be that the Cubs just weren't allowed to do that, or they maybe did Jason Hamill a favor. We don't really know. So th- we know that there is really no such thing as having too many uh, decent starters, right? Yeah. Uh, the the loss of Hamill, uh, whether it's because of that or maybe maybe it was a concern with uh, the injury that uh, derailed the end of his season and, you know, was probably somewhat responsible for his omission from the postseason roster. Uh, that that means that makes Mike Montgomery the number five starter, I suppose. Well, there are. I think I know Joe Madden has talked about Mike Montgomery as a possible starter. Montgomery was terrible as a starting pitcher basically his entire career as a, as a big leaguer. He was really good out of the bullpen last year. Considering that they're losing a role as Chapman uh, and Hector Rondon and Pedro Strope are now question marks going into next season, given how ineffective they were at the end of the year. I don't think the Cubs are in a position to remove from their bullpen in order to get a bad fifth starter back. Um, so my guess is Montgomery is going to pitch in relief next year, and they will acquire a fifth starter and probably a sixth starter. Okay, so this is the solution to the to the problem, right? It, but we do know so acquiring a player, is it? Acquiring a player from free agency will probably be more difficult. Uh, we've You've just discussed, we've just spent some time discussing how poor the market is. There's Rich Hill and... Uh, Jeremy Hellickson and Javon Okay, sure. Get, and get, so excited, we, we, get excited. <laughs> well, I mean, if it's if it's only if if it's the back end of your rotation, you're hoping you're hoping to populate. That obviously, um, you can you have a few more options. Uh, do you think that any of those three are, are 
uh, are likely to become Cubs in the next few months? I would be surprised if the Cubs were not aggressive players for Rich Hill. I don't know their offseason plan, uh, but I think if you kind of look at where they are and you say, okay, look, Rich Hill started his career with the Cubs, it would be kind of a fun full circle for him to come back and finish his career with the Cubs. This kind of high-risk, high-reward uh, potential frontline starter is exactly the kind of guy the Cubs can afford to take a bet on. And because they have enviable depth, they can also go get someone to kind of be in the wings in case Rich Hill fails, where some other team might not have that luxury. And they could say, look, we can't be on the hook for a 39-year-old Rich Hill if we give him a three-year contract. The Cubs can make that bet and say, you know what? We want to win the World Series again. We want to, you know, come right back with this team. Uh, we don't necessarily know what Jake Arrieta is going to be um, next year, given how his second half, his command, just came and went from start to start. He's a free agent at the end of next year. Lester's getting older. We don't have, you know, John Mackey's a free agent at the end of next year. So we could look at Rich Hill and say, look, if he can keep this up and if he can stay remotely healthy, we could team him with Kyle Hendricks for the next couple of years at the front of our rotation. Um, I think that Rich Hill makes a ton of sense as the Cubs starter. I mean, they can, he wouldn't be the fifth starter necessarily, but you'd pencil him in and say, we don't know how many innings we're going to get from this guy. And then we're going to go trade for some, you know, swing guy who can, like the Adam Warren role. And Adam Warren didn't work out very well in Chicago, but that kind of guy who's around to be like, when Rich Hill goes on the disabled list, we have this guy to step in. If not, he's going to pitch in the bullpen. And then if Hill works out really well and continues to be an ace, um, the Cubs are as well positioned as anybody to take advantage of that in the short term. So rotation help, maybe a couple guys for the rotation, uh, presumably someone for uh, the end of the bullpen, um, given some of the uncertainties there, as you mentioned, with Strope and Rondon, plus the departure of Chapman. And then uh, I, how do you suppose they'll they'll address the outfield alignment entering next season? I mean, I think it's pretty likely they're going to make a trade, right? So, like, Javier Baez showed enough in the first couple rounds of the World Series before the Indians destroyed him in the World Series. Um, in the first couple rounds of the playoffs, Baez showed enough that he basically became an everyday player for them, which pushed Ben Zobras to the outfield. Um, they could potentially move Jason Hayward to center and run uh, Zobrist and right and Wilson Contreras uh, or Kyle Schwarber and left. Uh, but Contreras might, you know, they might want him to catch more than he did this year. Um, and if he's their regular everyday catcher, then you have like a Schwarber solar, solar platoon and left. You could potentially just make that work and keep everybody. But I think like realistically, the Cubs didn't really want to use Jason Hayward as a center fielder this year, which is why they sound signed Fowler uh, in March. They're happier with him in right field. Uh, I think if you're trying to fix Jason Hayward's swing and say we need to get him back on track offensively, moving him to center field at the same time is probably like, maybe a little too much to ask. So I would think that there's a there's a trade to be made here. Whether it's moving Solaire uh, for a center fielder, uh, that might be the easiest way to do this, is just go find a team that has more glove guys than back guys and wants to make an exchange. Um, you could potentially also see Javier Baez get traded. I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that the Cubs say, look, you know, Baez just impressed a lot of people on a big stage in the postseason, uh, but we think Zobrist is a better fit at second base than the outfield as he gets older. Um, so let's sell high on Baez at this point. So I think the Cubs will move one of their young hitters. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, I don't want to take up your entire day, so let's move to Cleveland then. Craig Edwards, I thought, wrote admirably about Cleveland uh, shortly after the World Series, uh, addressing some of their concerns. Now, this was an interesting club because they're, they had uh, – they had a very modest payroll entering the year, and not only that, uh, they had a bunch of money committed to what Michael Bourne and and Nick Nick Swisher. Nick Swisher. Yeah, uh, and yet, and they also lost 
arguably their best player, certainly their best field player in Michael Brantley, and then they went to the World Series. Yeah, and, and they went to the World Series after losing Danny Salazar and Carlos Carrasco. I mean, this is not a team that had, like, everything go right, right? So, like, the Indians had a, a lot of things go against them that you would think, okay, well, this is a, you know, a mid-80s team that had a, bad, a lot of bad luck, so that's how they end up in the mid-70s. Instead, this was a mid-80s team with a lot of bad luck that ended up in the World Series. That's a... Uh, some of that was offset by like Jose Ramirez having a five-win season and Mike Napoli being better than anyone expected. Um, and obviously the, the bullpen was fantastic, especially after they acquired Andrew Miller. Um, but I do think if you're looking at the kind of Cleveland going forward, there's more question marks here than there is with Chicago and, you know, probably some other teams even in the American League. I think, you know, Danny Salazar and Carlos Carrasco are both guys who have extensive injury histories. So the fact that they were limited this year, you can't just be like, well, we get them back at full strength and they're going to throw 200 innings next year. You don't know that, right? And so um, you have some you have rotation question mark uh, issues that potentially you have to solve. Um, you're going to have most likely a downturn in the position players. Jose Ramirez probably not going to have a five-win season again. Mm-hmm. If Michael Brantley comes back, that would be great. But with like a two-year shoulder problem, that's certainly not something I can count on. Uh, Taylor Naquin is not going to hit as well as he did this year, uh, and given his defensive issues in the postseason, maybe even shouldn't be their starting center fielder next year. I think there's uh, there's a lot of issues that the the Indians will have to kind of address this winter um, if they want to be considered one of the elite teams in baseball. Yeah, so so Mike Napoli, I believe, has cut. He's a free agent now, is that right? Correct. Yeah. So uh, that frees up first base. Is it? Is first base a difficult, a difficult position for which to search? Obviously, there's not the same sort of um, defensive uh, obligations that players need to fill, but you usually are trying to find a bat uh, that is that is you know has some power, and uh, this is something that can be overpriced in the market. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're um, if you're a team like Cleveland, and you're probably not going to be like that interested in Mark Trumbo, right? Like that's not your kind of player. Uh, and you're, you don't want to necessarily spend whatever $100 million or whatever Trumbo is going to cost coming off a 45 home run season, you're probably looking in that, like, who can we find as, like, the next Mike Napoli, right? Especially because mm-hmm. you already have Carlos Santana. And I think, as we saw, if Cleveland's looking at it long-term, saying, hey, look, you know, Santana's kind of a first baseman DH. Do we want to have two of these guys? So if we get to the World Series again, we can only play one of them or we have to stick Santana in left field. That's not an ideal situation. So I would think that they're probably looking at kind of another Napoli type where they're looking for – you know, a guy past his prime or or maybe a Chris Carter type or a Pedro Alvarez, someone in that mold where they would say, look, we think we can get this guy for five or six or ten million bucks or whatever, and he can give us 600 good plate appearances, but not someone that we necessarily think is like the core of the team. Yeah. Mike Napoli has occupied a bit a bit of a, an interesting place in baseball, What I mean, for five years or so now, right? I mean, since he, can, since he, he went full-time to first base slash DH, He's sort of it. It's been a sort of strange thing because I mean I certainly remember playing catcher for years or technically playing catcher for years, uh, but then he he moved to first base full time. I wonder uh, that I mean it it seems to make sense, but I also don't necessarily remember a lot of players having done it very competently. Uh, of course, you know Joe Mauer, for example, moved to first base and that has not gone particularly well. I guess Victor Martinez became a DH. Yeah, I mean Martinez is probably the most similar uh, recent conversion. Um, I mean, I think it happens more 
when with younger players, right? So like Bryce Harper was a catcher, and then he moved to the outfield successfully. I think you see it less often with guys who have been like long time major league catchers because catching like really wears down your body. Uh, I guess Scott Hatterberg would maybe be another example from like ten years ago. Um, but I think guys who can catch uh, in the big leagues for some period of time they take a toll on their body, and so then when they get to their mid thirties, they're not necessarily hundred uh, percent anymore, and it's not like they have the ability to oh let's go be David Ortiz for five years. Right, and then and then they're probably if you go back a little bit earlier, you have cases like Carlos Delgado, right? right yeah. Who and and as you mentioned, Bryce Harper, a much more recent example, where the bat was so advanced right. that you're, that a club is not really willing to let the defensive skills come together because the, because of what they're missing out in the offensive side. Yeah, it'll just take too long to get him to the point where he would be uh, an acceptable major league defensive catcher, and you'd have said, okay, we just gave you two years of the minors trying to learn how to catch when you could have been the seven-win outfielder in the big leagues. Like, that's just not worth the trade-off. Right, and I guess that's why it's strange why why someone like Martinez or Napoli – now, they wouldn't – I don't think either of them was ever known for their defensive chops per se. No. Um, but they did play catcher for for some time. Oh, I guess and we're actually forgetting the most obvious example, Carlos Santana, who's on the Indians. Who's also on, on the same team, right? <laughs> I bet there's a bunch of Cleveland fans just like <laughs> listening to the first the last few minutes of this podcast and be like, these two people are idiots. Yeah, that's which fine. is I'm sure very correct in that regard. They're saying, yeah, yeah, Carlos and uh, Josh Willingham, I think. Oh I yeah, Josh Willingham retired now, but he came up as a catcher. And I think he was a player, right? Because he was a, I feel like he made his uh, debut a little bit later. So he was a he player. Was like I think that twenty six or twenty seven year old. Yeah. Yeah, the Marlins were eventually like, yeah, he's probably not going to be a catcher. Right. Like, and that's that's probably the danger, right? You wait around for the defensive skills to coalesce, and then they never do. Yeah. And now you have you, know, you have like a middle aged player. Right. You you have a bat only guy who doesn't have a position and is now maybe in the peak of his career, but doesn't hasn't proven he can hit major league pitching yet. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that's probably why teams don't do it. So Cleveland and uh, but no, they don't have the resources. Although they uh, Cleveland, but they do they do benefit from uh, the um, I guess now the absence of the the Swisher and Bourne contracts from their um, and, and from their payroll and also um, so probably some money. Yeah, from from appearing in the World Series. Yeah, absolutely. They're going to give a substantial revenue boost long term uh, from from. Appearing in the World Series estimates, I think, for a range from somewhere like fifty to one hundred million dollars for a deep playoff run. That's not immediate. It's not like they just like show up at one day and there's like an armored truck in front of the stadium. But they can sign longer term deals, knowing that their 2017, 18, 19 revenue stream has just gotten larger. So they can probably be a little bit more aggressive in free agency if they want to. Um, that said, when you look at their needs and then you look at the free agent class, like you could make a case for UNS Espinas fitting with the Indians, but that's probably not happening. Um, you could make a case for Dexter Fowler, I guess, um, but it's hard to see the Indians maybe outbidding a bunch of other teams for potentially the second best outfielder on the market. Um, I can maybe see them in on like an Ian Desmond type. Like Desmond could be interesting to them as a guy who could play center, could play left, uh, could even move back to the infield if they thought they needed him to for whatever reason. Um, so I can see them in on that kind of free agent. I don't think they're going to be up there in the 150 million range or whatever sense this is going to get. So we've mentioned with the Cubs that they'll probably be looking uh, for, you know, for some reinforcements. Of course, the free agent market isn't particularly great for for them, uh, except for maybe Rich Hill, something like that. We've also discussed how Cleveland could benefit some uh, for some additional players to fill some gaps. The free agent market, as you've just noted, uh, would not necessarily be a great benefit to them. Ian Desmond might make sense. But you've written today about a club that could help everybody, it seems like. Yeah. Uh, 
and that's the the Chicago Cubs. No, no, no Chicago in, White Sox. Chicago White Sox. Yeah. Chicago Cubs can help zero people the because Chicago they're just going to can help them by beating them. By beating them, that's basically what they do. The Chicago White Sox. Uh, Chicago White Sox, on the other hand, what is it? What is it that makes them particularly well suited to? to trade away players at this point. Yeah, so the White Sox are maybe, at this point, the last remaining Stars and Scrubs team in baseball. Like, I think we've seen uh, most front offices uh, recognize at this point that depth is important in baseball. And, like, you don't just need a few good players and then surround them with whatever you can find at the league minimum or from your farm system. You need 10, 15, 20 good players to win the World Series or to even get to the playoffs. Uh, the White Sox have... A championship nucleus. And therefore, like, if you just look at Chris Sale and Jose Quintana and Jose Abreu and Adam Eaton and Todd Frazier, you're like, yeah, this is, you're, you're a good chunk of the way there. And then it just, the drop off is so dramatic from there to the rest of their roster, um, that this is just not a team that's good enough to win. And, uh, you know, potentially you could look at it and say, okay, this is a 500-ish team. We make a couple more upgrades if we can find, you know, whatever we need, a second baseman and another outfielder and a DH and a back-end starter. If we can find all that stuff in one winner, we can get to 86, 87 wins. We can get a little bit lucky. We have, you know, Jose Abreu bounces back and becomes a superstar again. We can make a run, and that's kind of what the White Sox have talked themselves into the last couple of years. But I think after a couple of years of making making runs at it and seeing – um, they're just not quite good enough and not quite up to the, the standards of the rest of the American League. They're in a position this winter because the free agent class is not good and because there's a lot of teams still who want to go for it every year that if they want to just open up the truck and say, look, we're open for business, we'll sell you know, our five best players or five of our six best players. Maybe they want to keep Adam Eaton. We'll sell Chris Sale and Jose Quintana and David Robertson and Nate Jones uh, and Todd Frazier and Jose Abreu. Like, they could really just dominate the offseason in a way like the Padres basically did this a couple of years ago where they were involved in every single trade. They, uh, I think Rick, Rick Hahn could basically control the winter flow of those. And and uh, this was a particularly good offseason to do it, no, because of the free agency situation? Yeah, I mean, so like generally uh, what you see is um, you you get the highest price when there's not alternatives, right? So like if you're a trade, t- if you're a team trying to sell a quality player, uh, like say Chris Sale, last winter might have been a little bit tough to do it because any team who was looking at trading for Chris Sale had to measure what your asking price was against the price of just throwing a bunch of money at David Price or Zach Greinke. And so you, you know, the buyer had alternatives. This winter, if the White Sox decided not to sell Chris Sale, I really don't know what the alternative is for any team to go acquire a number one starter. You could bet on Rich Hill's health and age, maybe, but I don't think anyone's going to look at him and Chris Sale as the same thing. You could try and talk the Rays out of Chris Archer, but I don't think the Rays are going to sell low on Archer coming off not a great year. Sonny Gray didn't look like an ace at all last year. Um, I think the the other guys that you could go try and trade for just aren't at sales level, and you could actually make the same case for Jose Quintana. There's no one else at Jose Quintana's level either. So I think if you're the White Sox, you basically have unique assets to to put in this market and say, look, I've got the only one, and I think what we saw is a trade deadline, the Yankees did this with Andrew Miller and Rolls Chapman, said, like, we've got the only two relievers that anyone really wants if they're contenders. There's nowhere else to go for these kinds of relievers. Uh, so we're going to demand Kyle Schwarber. We're going to demand Clint Frazier. We're going to ask for these crazy asking prices, and we're going to get it because there's no alternatives. The White Sox could basically do that this winter. Yeah, and it, I guess it would be interesting to see if they do. As any team, you said the Padres did that. Is that the Padres, which version of the Padres was that? 
So I was more like I wasn't saying the Padres sold like this, but two years ago when AJ Preller took over, right, he was involved in basically every transaction, right? Like yeah. every deal went through San Diego that winter, and the Padres just ran the whole offseason, and everybody had to wait around to see what Preller was doing next. Uh, Rickon could basically make himself as like the the intersection of the offseason, where you know the Dodgers and Red Sox and Cubs and every other team of baseball just had to sit around and wait for Rickon to decide what he wanted to do because he owned. Uh, you know, the five things that everyone wants. Let me ask you uh, quickly about Chris Sale and, and players who are in a similar situation. As him. Chris Sale would have been a free agent this year. He would have been. Uh, Neil Weinberg wrote about this today. Chris Sale signed an extension for what roughly $33 million. Yeah, I think he's probably gotten closer to 37 or something with um, various bonuses, but yeah. Right, and then there are what there are club options for right. eighteen and nineteen, two thousand eighteen, yeah. two thousand nineteen, yeah. twelve and a half and thirteen and a half million. This is much less than Chris Sale would be receiving on the free agent in the market. The open yeah, market. Chris, Chris Sale, if he was a free agent this winter, would be in the David Price price range or Zach Ranky price range. He'd be over two hundred million dollars. So, so Neil Weinberg wrote about this today. He uh, he took a look at I believe the thirteen players who would have been 13 most notable players, I guess, who would have been free agents this year, and attempted to um, evaluate, I, I suppose, just on a <clears throat> on a strict basis of average, you know, average income, um, if the extension had been a good or a bad idea uh, at that point. And, um, and for the second year in a row, because Weinberg conducted a similar uh, study last year, he found that, and this is perhaps not surprising, but I'm curious as to how not surprising it is, found that uh, the majority of, of would-be free agents, would have been free agents, are, are going to end up making less over the next year or a few years or in June's, I mean, there's some quite long contracts as well, uh, making less than they would have otherwise if they hadn't signed an extension, if they had bet on themselves essentially. Right. Uh, team, um, teams are signing these deals because they're uh, – Saving money. Right. Yeah. So the players are making less than they otherwise would have. Yeah. But as as we've discussed on a number of occasions here, that what they are doing essentially is they are valuing that first ten million dollars. Right. Or that first, you know, twenty or thirty million dollars much more heavily than the twenty or thirty million after that. Uh, because that's that's sort of like a life-changing money, right. whereas your life changes much less when you're going, you know, between fifty and even two hundred million dollars. Honestly, because fifty million is pretty good. Right. I mean, that first few million gets you to never have to work again, even if your career ends, you know, in like Brandon Webb fashion or something. Like at that point, you're you're, you're fine. You can go do whatever you want for the next sixty years, and your kids are probably fine too. It's that you know that next fifteen million is like how many boats do I get to own and like how many crazy vacations do I get to take? Those aren't as important as I don't have to work anymore. So, but here's the question: Now, obviously, that security is important, and if you ask any individual player, that this is you know they're probably going to be continue to make those choices. However, when you look at the enti- entire population of would have been free agents, it does look like. It, it does seem as though there's a case to be made, and I'm curious if you would make that case, a case to be made for for the players being a little bit more aggressive um, in in going to free agency to test the market and, again, as, as we say, betting on themselves. Yeah, so I think players have already made this adjustment. So uh, when we talk about the next couple of years of free agent classes, people are like, oh, my God, in two years we get Bryce Harper and Manny Machado and Clayton Kershaw and – you know, Josh Donaldson and like the crop two years from now is insane. It's, 
it's the best free agent class anyone has ever seen. Some of those guys will sign before it gets there, and it won't be quite as good as it looks now, but it still looks like it's going to be an insane free agent class. Um, and I think what we're seeing is a lot of the best young players in baseball uh, have not signed these crazy long-term deals. Like, the Cubs haven't yet signed Chris Bryant, right? And so, like, um, I think we're looking at an adjustment where uh, the players and the agents have kind of run the numbers and said, uh, look, you've been good enough this early in your career to already kind of command arbitration dollars that are going to be pretty high. You're not going to get non-tendered. Like, there's just no way, you know, even if you blow out your arm, you're still getting tendered a contract. You're going to make that first 10 or 15, 20 million dollars anyway, even if you go to year to year. So that lure that teams were offering is, hey, look, you've got no guaranteed money. Maybe you grew up poor. Maybe this is life-changing money for you. I think players are realizing that once you have one to two years of success in the big leagues, you're basically already guaranteed some amount of arbitration payday. Um, and they're adjusting and saying, let's not sign these Madison Bumgarner deals or Chris Sale deals or Chris Archer deals. Like, I don't think we're seeing those kinds of, you know, I'm going to sell myself for $20 million for five or six years with three team options. So we're just not seeing those kinds of deals anymore for the best players in baseball. So what, so what do you think, uh, will this affect pitchers differently than hitters though? And if, I mean, I, I assume there is some difference, right? But, do you think a pitcher is more likely to sign one of these types of extensions? You just mentioned Bumgarner. You just mentioned Sale. Is it, are they more likely to sign this type of extension than a hitter is? Yeah. I think uh, pitchers come with more risk. Everyone knows that at this point. Um, I don't think that it's as easy for a pitcher to look at it and say, okay, I'm basically set because if I have Tommy John, uh, you know, I'm definitely coming back. Um, I think with the rising elbow issues, um, I, I think pitchers are more likely to say, look, I just want that first $30, 40 $50 million dollars. That said, I do think the price is going up, right? So um, we haven't seen uh, as many of these kinds of sale Bumgarner type extensions with the, you know, Noah Syndergaard hasn't signed that kind of deal yet. Like the guys who've come up lately um, haven't signed those contracts, and I do think agents are uh, encouraging their players to bet on themselves a little more frequently. All right, last thing before you are excused after fulfilling your obligation, uh, the – not long after the completion of the World Series, there was a trade of Cameron Mabin from Detroit to the Los Angeles Angels in exchange yeah. for a prospect who, according to Longenhagen's uh, light prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen's report, is a middle relief prospect. Yeah. Uh, uh, going back to the Tigers, uh, this does not seem to be a sign that the Tigers are going all in on the 2017 season, and yet they have a number of high-priced players. Curious, what what do you envision the the Tigers' plan being as they enter the, this next year? I don't think the Maven trade really has anything to do with the Tigers' plan. I think they looked at it and said, we don't really want to pick up this $9 million option, so instead of just declining it and making him a free agent, let's just shop him around the league and see if anyone else wants to come and move for $9 million. The Angels did, because the Angels have no outfielder besides Mike Trout and Cole Calhoun. So uh, I think this was just a situation where the Angels valued Maimon differently than the Tigers did, and the Angels were like, yeah, he's worth $9 bucks and a throwaway prospect, and the Tigers were like, great, now we don't have to uh, just get rid of Maimon for nothing. Now we get some arm that we can just stick in our minor league system for depth, and maybe we can use in relief in three years or use as a trade chip at the deadline. Um, so I don't necessarily think this was like the sign of the Tigers tearing down. This was they just didn't want Cameron Maimon anymore. Who do they have in the outfield then? Who do they got? Martinez, Upton, and... Yeah, that's kind of what they have. So <laughs> okay. uh, I think Jacoby Jones is probably the the current leader in the clubhouse. It's still Anthony Ghost, but he's not any good. Um, so I you wouldn't know, be surprised. Maybe, 
Maybe when healthy was uh, has been pretty effective uh, since he's going up and down. I would say. Yeah, he's he's making a lot more contact than he did earlier in his career. That's true. He's also hitting for less power than people thought. Yeah, yeah. that's a trade off. He's decently athletic, though, right? Decently athletic. Yeah, but not a great defender. Okay. I have some reason I like Cameron Maven. Okay. Well, you like a lot of guys who aren't very good. Might not be based in fact. You're right, Dave Cameron. Hey, listen. We've done it. Oh, wait. One other question. <clears throat> I was uh, thinking about this in my own head the other day as opposed to when I use other people's heads. Um, I started to think uh, if you were to evaluate – if you were looking for a very quick way to evaluate the strengths of a team, right? And, and I think about the Dodgers in this particular case, right? The thing that was notable about the Dodgers this year – it was their excellent depth, right? Yeah. Um, be, yeah, right. So if there was injury, yeah. they, they had players. Yeah. I was wondering if you could evaluate a team based on the quality of like the 20th best player on their roster. If you went well, down. I don't, you'd, I don't think you'd want to just pick one guy. Or like an average of the, yeah, yeah. you know, if, like 21 to like, 25. Right. If you took basically, um, um, the trick is you don't necessarily want to just look at like bench players because depth includes minor leaguers, right? So like part of the reason the Dodgers had success this year is like Grant Dayton, who was not considered part of their 25-man opening day roster, uh, turned into their second best relief pitcher after Kenley Jansen this year. Like that's real depth that matters. So you'd want to basically look at like projected value um, from players not necessarily in the starting nine or starting five or maybe the top three relievers, right? So if you basically say like these are the 17 kind of core players – uh, let's eliminate those guys. Let's look at like the average value or the aggregate value maybe of the next five best guys based on the projections. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's interesting. That is, uh, there's a post you do. Yep. Yeah. You too, Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cameron, you've fulfilled your obligation. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right. Stick around for one second. We discuss. Uh, scheduling stuff. Uh, but in the meantime, that has been Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>